What cells are half a mnemonic for CLL? Oh, yeah. Uh, what conditions lead to an elevated indirect bilirubin? some of the easier content that we would have covered. So um, I think neuro was a lot more difficult and endo was definitely a lot more difficult. Um, and this will be a nice, uh, you know, easier content uh, right before we get into infectious disease, um, which is going to be brutal. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, do, yeah, question. We have five exams. Yeah. Um, and what, what are we on? Exam three is coming up. This will be four, and then ID will be five. Yeah, three is Friday. Yeah, three is Friday. Yeah, we had GI, we had endocrine, and now we have neuro and psych, and then room, and then ID. Yeah, we did. We did go over those things. Um, so, yeah, make sure you do really good on this exam, because uh, while I hope you all do fantastic on infectious disease, and I'll do my best to make sure you do, um, by the way I teach and structure the lectures, uh, you never know. So, but this one, if you, if you work really hard, like it's not, it's not very dense and it's very manageable to do good on this exam. So make sure you do. Um, all right, so we're going to get started. So what is gout? Um, again, we're not going to go into, you guys don't do this, I think, until the summer, um, where you talk about a lot of the rheumatologic diseases and ortho and things like that. So when we have our questions, it's going to be a lot like neuro and psych where they're going to be more structured on the meds and you're not going to be getting vignettes where you have to diagnose and treat. Um, so don't worry too much about definitions and things like that in terms of testing. It's just to give you uh, an idea of what the condition is. So just quickly in summary, gout um, is an inflammatory condition that affects the joints, um, usually affects one joint at a time. Okay. Um, what's the most common joint that's affected? Do you guys know? The first metatarsal. Okay, most commonly, but it can affect uh, other toes. It can affect the ankle. I've seen that a lot. It can affect the knees. Um, it can affect the shoulders, the elbows, uh, the wrist, a lot of different places. But the toes are most common, and the toes usually where they're going to test you one. Um, so the symptoms are what? Excruciating pain. So usually people who have gout, like you, you look at their foot, and it hurts. Um, they like to say in a vignette that they're like just the the bed covers laying on their foot will elicit pain. So if you just stroke your hand across it and they're in pain, usually that's indicative of something like gout. Whereas with cellulitis or other um, inflammatory conditions, it, it takes a little more pressure or movement to induce pain. Can, can a nephropathy take away the pain? Can a nephropathy take away the pain? Is it diabetic? No, it usually still hurts. Yeah, usually it still hurts. Um, these, uh, these patients sometimes have the gouty episodes because of an excess uric acid that deposits, um, but you can have completely normal uric acid levels and still have gout. 
Um, and you can also have very high uric acid levels and not have gout. So uric acid levels is an important test to do because it will increase your risk for developing them, but not every single patient with gout has an elevated serum uric acid level. Um, so it's important to remember that. In the acute setting, ordering a uric acid level is not extremely important, um, but chronically to prevent treatment, it is, it is important. Um, clinically speaking, when you guys are um, trying to evaluate and diagnose gout, um, the most important thing is to, one, make sure it's not something else. So you need to have a really good differential diagnosis when you think something is gout. Because we said the signs and symptoms are pain, and what else? Pain. Stiffness. Warmth. One more. Swelling. One more. Redness, right? Which all sounds also like... Any inflammatory process, right? So what, what other processes can you think of? What, who said what? Wait, DVT is the biggest one, right? So you don't, if somebody has a knee, right? So the most common place is the toe. If it's in the toe, usually you're not going to miss a DVT because uh, swelling and redness in a toe is not correlated at all with the DVT. But swelling, redness, and pain in the knee um, can definitely be a DVT. So whenever you have it somewhere like that, like in the knee, um, be very careful and don't miss a DVT because it happens all the time. Um, so keep that in mind. Make sure it's not a DVT. Somebody said infection. So it could be something simple like a cellulitis, so an overlying infection, which could be anywhere. You could have a red toe. It could be a cellulitis to the toe. Also very painful, red, warm swelling. Um, but even more importantly than that is uh, septic arthritis, right? So it hurts to move the joints. It's red. It's painful. Could be gout. Could also be septic arthritis. So you have to think about the risk factors for the patient, have they had gout before, which will make this more likely. But be very careful your first time diagnosing somebody with gout that it's not something else that you're not missing. Um, so things that can cause gout is dietary, uh, poor dietary habits. We're not poor, um, but you know, you eat a lot of steak, uh, drink a lot of alcohol, uh, foods that are high in purines will increase your risk of gout. Um, there are certain medications that will do it. And the ones they really, really, really like to test you on is usually, bless you, is usually diuretics. Uh, and for some reason, they love to test you on thiazide diuretics, uh, which will increase your levels of uric acid and also increase your levels of what? Calcium. Calcium, hypercalcemia. So, and one more. Hyperglycemia. Yeah, so hyperglycemia, uricemia, and calcemia. Those are the big things with thiazides that for some reason, manage to pop themselves up on test questions all the time. Um, so the problem with gout and the reason that you want to treat gout so quickly and um, not let it linger is because over time, it can cause permanent joint disruption. So they can have permanent deformities in the joints. They can have reduced range of motion. Um, and depending on what joint is being affected, that can be very problematic uh, for the patient, right? So you want to make sure you treat it as soon as possible. Um, yeah. a, other things that are completely irrelevant to farm, but that I'll just touch on with you guys so that you can have it um, in your head for medicine and things like that is um, how you diagnose it. So usually it's a clinical diagnosis. So the, you see the patient, it's red, it's warm, it's extremely painful. They don't have risk factors for septic arthritis or you don't think it's a cellulitis, so you treat it like a gouty flare-up. Um, and that's usually how you do it clinically. Uh, Test-wise, if you wanted to, you can order a uric acid level, which will tell you about their risk for possibly having gout due to excess uric acid levels. 
Um, but the way to confirm it would be what? Sam. Huh? Sampling. Huh? Sampling. Sampling. How? Cool. Right? So needle aspiration, you aspirate the joint and you sample it. Um, and then, although we almost never do that, um, clinically we don't usually take aspirates from the joint uh, because it can be diagnosed clinically, it's a little bit invasive. But if you suspect one, it's septic arthritis and you want to confirm, hey, it's not septic arthritis, you can sample it to see if it's bacterial. Um, and if you just, on a test question, they may ask you what's the confirmatory way to diagnose it, which would be sampling. And on the sampling, do you guys know what you'll see? What kind of crystals? They're, yes, sharp, needle-shaped, yeah, needle-shaped, right? Negatively bifringent, awesome. Monosodium urate crystals, right? So negatively bifringent, needle-shaped, good. So, and that's important because they like to test you on that versus pseudogout, which is positively bifringent calcium pyrophosphate crystals. So just things to keep in mind. Um, as you guys may be doing questions and things like that may come up. But again, nothing we just talked about is extremely relevant to um, the actual form, except for thiazide diuretics, which you guys have already covered, being a trigger for uh, gouty flare-ups, okay? So keep that in mind, because you may see that on your exam in some way, shape, or form. Um, so these are the medications we're gonna talk about. Um, we're just gonna go into them. So colchicine. Colchicine is a medication that they like to test a lot on the pants, um, and it is used for gout, but a lot of times we try not to use this medication first line, um, and the reason for that is that it has some uh, side effects which make it very uh, difficult to use, and the main one is diarrhea. And a lot of medications we talk about cause diarrhea, but this medication almost always causes diarrhea, and it's usually very aggressive. Um, so patients, you give it to them, and then they start having the diarrhea, they stop taking it. So. Colchicine is not really used first line, um, but don't be scared to pick it as an answer choice on your test questions because they use it a lot. Isn't it also um, used for preventative measures if you're like feeling or suspecting the pain that's arising? It can be used to prevent. Um, the main medication used to prevent is allopurinol, but it can be used at the early signs of a flare-up yeah. to prevent. Um, and the reason is that the way the medication works so gout, again, it's an inflammatory process. You get deposition of these crystals, and then your body starts the inflammatory cascade, which spirals out of control and causes a lot of pain in the joint. So colchicine stops that from happening because it helps prevent cell division by um, causing disruption in the microtubules in the cells so that they can't divide. So it kind of halts that inflammatory cascade. So yes, you can use it at the onset of symptoms, um, but really, once you start feeling the symptoms, you're having an acute crisis, so you're using it really in acute crisis. It's not used preventatively, but at the start, you want to start it as soon as possible. Within like the first 12 hours of symptoms, you want to start the medication. Um, so can it be used preventatively? Uh, I wouldn't say that you want to pick it as prophylactic. Prophylactically, you want to pick allopurinol, which is another medication we'll talk about. And sometimes when you start allopurinol, you'll start it with colchicine, because we'll talk about allopurinol now, and that medication Although it's meant to prevent gouty flare-ups, when you first start it, it can trigger a new flare-up. So, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so colchicine, used in acute flare-ups, uh, not first-line, but it is used in acute flare-ups in patients who do not respond to the first-line treatment. And we'll talk about the first-line treatment in a second. Um, the main adverse effect that you're gonna be tested on is diarrhea. 
they're going to test you on diarrhea all the time um, because it's pretty prominent side effects, which we see in a lot of medications, but with colchicine, it's very, very common. So when you start allopurinol, um, as we'll talk about in a bit, you can trigger a new crisis of gout, even though the medication is used to prevent it, which I know sounds kind of counterintuitive. So, but early on in the course of using allopurinol to prevent it, you can have flare-ups. So sometimes you'll give colchicine with the allopurinol to help make sure that early on in the course you don't have those, those flare-ups. Do you guys have any questions about this? So allopurinol um, is the medication that's used mainly in the prevention of um, an acute flare-up. You guys might see, in, um, if any of you look at the book at all, um, it says that you can use it in acute gouty flare-ups. Um, you can't use it in acute gouty flare-ups. We would never do it. Um, no one does it. The medication's meant to prevent new flare-ups. It's not really used in acute treatment. Um, so if you see that in the book, ignore it because uh, I've taken a lot of, first of all, clinically, nobody ever prescribes this in acute flare-ups because they can make it worse. Okay. Secondly, um, if you look up any other resource, it'll tell you you don't use it in acute flare-ups, so disregard that from the book. Um, I would never use it in acute flare-up. And the pants questions are always going to be about what your medication are you using acutely, and this is always the wrong answer. It's used preventatively. Um, how does it work? It prevents the breakdown of um, hypoxanthine to uric acid. So essentially it's preventing the process that creates uric acid in the body. Um, as far as preventative treatment goes, it's the first-line treatment. Uh, for acute flare-ups, it is not the first-line treatment, and it's completely avoided. No. Um, so, old people and diabetic patients can get gout, but it's, it can happen to anyone. It's there's a lot of young people who get gout. I mean, flare-ups and stuff like that. Happens to anybody. It's really dependent on um, one. I mean, usually it's dietary. So a lot of people eat a lot of purine-rich foods alcohol, red meats, um, things like that, so they'll get flare-ups. But it can also be because the body's overproducing it. Age doesn't necessarily play a huge role in that. Most of the patients I've had with gouty flare-ups are, are young, for the most part. Yeah? Okay, so you're saying that I'll feel, I'll feel is First sign's coming up. Oh, we're, not there. we're not there. It probably would have made sense to put first line first, right? <laughs> I agree. You're like, wait a minute. It's not first line. What the hell is first line? <laughs> True. Okay. All right. Um, so another medication that's also not first line. <laughs> we'll get to first line last, guys. Right? It's coming, I promise. We're working, we're working our way back. You guys seen that uh, episode in the office um, when they're doing a CPR? Yes. yes. And he's like, how many compressions per minute? He's like, well, how many is that per hour? Yes. <laughs> how does that help? He's like, I will divide and work back. <laughs> That's what we're doing here, guys. Um, so, again, uh, not first line. Uh, pro Probenicid and sulfonipirazone are medications that help excrete uric acid um, in the urine. So it literally, um, allopurinol, we talked about it for preventative measures. It 
reduces the breakdown of hypoxanthine to uric acid, so you have less uric acid, less risk of developing a flare-up. Um, probenicid will work by excreting the uric acid, so you're still going to have it, but you're going to be excreting it. So usually it's used in patients who are not responding well to allopurinol um, to help um, in preventative measures, um, but a lot of times we don't use it because if you're excreting a lot of uric acid in the urine, it increases the risk for developing uric acid kidney stones, which can be very problematic. So it's not used first line, and when it is used, um, patients have to drink a lot of water to help um, prevent the formation of stones. So now we're going to get to first line. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good old-fashioned NSAIDs. <laughs> um, so NSAIDs are the first line treatment. So whenever you have a patient, they come in, they got a gouty flare-up, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to give them an NSAID. Um, I never prescribe indomethacin. I usually prescribe um, another NSAID, naproxen or ibuprofen, something. Um, but for some reason in the pants, the NSAID of choice for gout is always going to be indomethacin. They like to test indomethacin for everything. Um, clinically, I, I just use any NSAID. Um, usually the one that's in the machine that we dispense from because I get like bonuses on that, right? Um, but indomethacin is the one that is going to be on your exams and the one that they're going to test you on all the time. Um, naproxen has been used as well, and that's what I use all the time. Um, you don't use you don't use salicylate, so you don't give them like aspirin for an acute gouty flare-up, but you can use pretty much any other NSAID. But be ready for indomethacin to be the one that's on your exam because it will. You guys have covered NSAIDs at nauseum in terms of side effects, ulcers, GI bleeds, all that good stuff, right? Um, so in acute gouty flare-up, um, just in summary, how do you treat it? So within the onset of symptoms, here it says colchicine plus indomethacin. Um, I would venture to say, and maybe I should change it, you're going to use, you could just use indomethacin by itself or any NSAID by itself. And if that doesn't work, you can start colchicine. Um, if it's very severe, can you give them together? Yes, but I typically do not give them um, in conjunction. Usually in your test questions, they're going to ask you for one. So you use NSAIDs. If you can't or it doesn't work, you will use colchicine. The dosing, you don't need to know it, but I wanted to put it here because I remember the first time I was prescribing colchicine um, because I was just like, oh, whatever, whenever I get gout, I'm just going to give them an NSAID, super easy. Um, and so you get somebody, and then like, nobody wants to take NSAIDs for gout because they can buy it over the counter. So they come to you, and they're like, I took two ibuprofens two hours ago, and this thing is still extremely painful. And you're like, oh, it takes some time, and they're like, no, I want something by prescription. So you give them a prescription. It's colchicine. And when I want to go prescribe it, I was like, what do you mean 0.6 milligrams? Like, that sounds like a very low dose. That's the way it is. It's 0.6 milligrams, um, and it's taken about two hours apart from each other, and you don't want to give them um, more than, I think, 10, yeah, 10 tablets uh, per day. And usually you only do it for like a few days for the treatment, for colchicine. Um, so those things are a little bit weird, so keep that in mind. When you look at it the first time and you're like, I've never prescribed something that's 0.6 anything. This medication still seems a little bit weird. Hey, if they're having a lot of diarrhea, usually you discontinue, depending on the severity of it. Because this is not like, um, we talked about medications like uh, metformin that can cause like GI disruption, diarrhea, and all these things, and it usually passes, so you can just keep taking it and wait to see. Uh, with colchicine, it, it does not pass. <laughs> it just gets worse if you add more. So, 
um, usually it'll discontinue and you'll try another agent. Um, not in this lecture, um, at least I don't think it is, but something we use a lot is steroids. So usually you'll do NSAIDs, NSAIDs don't work, you try colchicine, colchicine doesn't work, you can do steroids, you can give them like prednisone, um, and then those are kind of like the, the sequence of treatment for um, an acute flare-up. Um, Probenicid will really be kind of like also a later line treatment that you can use to help excrete uric acid, but um, it's not used extremely commonly. Um, so gout prevention, this was more talking about acute gouty flare-ups, um, colchicine and endomethacin, endomethacin being your first line treatment, colchicine being used either as an adjunct together or as a substitute for endomethacin. Um, and then probenicid could be substituted for colchicine, but again, a lot of times it's not used in acute, in acute flare-ups, to, um, to be honest. And it's not commonly tested either. Uh, on my exam, you will have questions about colchicine, you will have questions about endomethacin, you will have questions about allopurinol. You have some questions about pro probenicid, uh, mainly about how it works and what uh, adverse consequences can come from the use of probenicid, which we already talked about. So those are things that you need to definitely focus on. As far as prevention goes, um, colchicine is here at under preventative, but I want to be very clear, uh, patients are not chronically taking colchicine to prevent gouty flare-ups. It is used at the onset of treatment with allopurinol to reduce the risk of an acute flare-up, which can happen when you take allopurinol. So what that looks like is somebody comes in, their toe's red, it's hot, it's painful, you think it's gout, you tell them, hey, take some NSAIDs. You prescribe them what? Endomethacin. Okay. The endomethacin doesn't work, so you prescribe them. They get terrible diarrhea. Um, their toe still hurts, so you prescribe them steroids. It finally gets better. They go see their PCP. You get them out of your urgent care. Don't have to deal with them anymore. Fantastic. Now they go see their PCP, who checks their uric acid levels, which are super high. Um, their PCP now starts them on allopurinol for prevention. So we know one of the side effects of allopurinol is that it can cause it can cause at first an acute flare-up. So if you're worried about that, and a lot of people don't do this, but if you're worried about them, you can prescribe them colchicine to prevent the flare-up that can come as a result of the use of allopurinol. But they are not chronic. We just reviewed the whole lecture in 10 seconds. Sorry. <laughs> but it's not used, so patients are not just like, yeah, I take colchicine, um, you know, 0.6 milligrams daily every two hours for the prevention of gout. That's not how it works. So uh, I just don't want that to be misleading here because it's under the prevention slide. Um, Low-dose NSAIDs can be used, although that is not used often and you will not be tested on that um, because we don't want patients chronically taking NSAIDs for a variety of reasons. Um, but typically allopurinol is going to be your choice, and if allopurinol is not working, um, Probenicid can be used, and that's typically how you're tested on preventative. Uh, professor. Yeah. So probenicid in the sequence of treatment, do we give it if the steroid doesn't work? Probenicid in the sequence of treatment, you can use it really. So after after endomethacin, which is first line, you want to go to colchicine, and after colchicine, prednisone, probenicid, and any other treatment, there's no. It's really a risk benefit at that point. If you have a patient who has hyperglycemia 
and you don't want to like or hypertension and you don't want to spike up their blood pressure and blood sugar then you avoid the steroid and you go to probenicid if you have a patient with a history of renal stones you don't want to cause more renal stones you go with the steroid so it's risk benefit at that point but initially um NSAIDs colchicine and after that it's kind of a toss-up depending on patient risk factors and take, uh, these types of patients that are yeah, if you're on allopurinol, um, a lot of times, yeah, they're on it for a long period of time. There's no way to correct that. So you, you, this is something where you want to try, um, typically what you do is you do the allopurinol, prevent uh, gaudy flare-ups. If the patient makes dietary modifications, you can try removing the medication and see if they have another flare-up and pull them off of it. Ideally, you would. Um, but if the patient is not adherent to those, they'll probably keep having flare-ups. So there's no side effects with allopurinol? Uh, all medications have side effects, but allopurinol doesn't have any um, very prominent or serious side effects that have been seen to cause issues with long-term use. Um, but yeah, any medication can give you side effects. Um, and that's pretty much it for this lecture. All right. Um, and we're going to move on to osteoporosis and osteopenia. I'm gonna do a thing here, guys, really quick. Hold on. And Ancest is now first on the slide. Uh, and another thing that I'm gonna do, which kind of bothered me as I was just teaching, is. Um, so for prevention, allopurinol should be probably first. I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to put here. Here, that's going to be really confusing. And there's a few people who aren't. Right. Oh, I should take this closer. Get rid of that. All right. Uh, and also, this should probably be. Nope. That didn't work on high plan. There we go. That's a lot more palatable. All right, fantastic. Oh wait, this is the actual PowerPoint. This wasn't updated on. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't updated on. So you sorry, we'll copy and paste it over. Save it. I'll save it, and we can re-upload yeah, it. Exactly. and osteopenia. Red Bull is not Celsius. No. Alright, so we talked a little bit about osteoporosis and osteopenia. I forgot when. Um, I think we were talking maybe about steroids and steroids having a risk of causing... Yeah. Causing what? 
Yeah, so long-term use can cause osteoporosis, osteopenia in patients on chronic glucocorticoids. I think that's where we talked about it. Um, and I briefly mentioned to you guys something called the T-scores. You guys remember that? Yeah. Cool. Less than not two. Less than negative. So yeah, less than negative two point five is osteoporosis, and normal is negative one or greater than negative one. So greater than negative one, normal. So that means that negative point nine zero one, all of those would be normal. Less than negative 2.5, which would be negative 2.6, negative 3, would be osteoporosis. And anything in between normal and porosis is osteopenia. Okay? Um, and the reason that matters is because you don't treat people for osteoporosis or osteopenia who are normal. Um, and you definitely treat people who have osteoporosis for osteoporosis. And people who have osteopenia, you may or may not treat, depending on other risk factors. Um, and things like that, all right? So you should know those T-scores um, because you may or may not have them as a reference for treatment indications. So with osteoporosis and osteopenia, um, again, something that you haven't covered in medicine, so something that we are not going to give you vignettes where you need to diagnose and, um, and treat. You're just going to be treating and answering questions about mechanism of action and adverse effects and things like that. So the reason people have osteoporosis and osteopenia is for a variety of reasons. It can be medication-induced. We talked about glucocorticoids being one of the biggest uh, medications that plays a role in osteoporosis and osteopenia. So who takes long-term steroids? So asthma patients may not be, yeah, they could be on chronic steroids, especially inhaled corticosteroids, and they may take them orally during acute flare-ups. So asthma patients can be on steroids quite a bit. Who else? Which ones? Patients who have adrenal insufficiency. And autoimmune disorders is the other big one. So patients that have autoimmune disorders may be on chronic steroids um, for treatment and immune suppression. So those type of patients are the ones that you may get in a vignette um, related to medication-induced osteopenia or osteoporosis. Um, not going to do it on my exam, unfortunately, because you guys haven't taken it yet, but that's what you might see. The other reason you can have osteoporosis and osteopenia, um, uh, what happens, uh, it it's only happens in women, and it's a big risk factor. Menopause. So postmenopausal, um, due to lack of estrogen, you can have a loss of bone mineral density, and you can't really replete that bone mineral density. So you'll see osteoporosis and osteopenia, most of these questions are going to be centered around postmenopausal um, female patients. The other thing is uh, that you should take into account is who you're treating because some of the medications we're going to talk about work on estrogen and are indicated in postmenopausal patients. So if your patient happens to be a male, um, you don't give them a medication like estrogen replacement um, because it's not going to do anything for them. So just, it's important to remember that. Okay. Men, men are not going to have postmenopausal osteoporosis. They can have it for other reasons, but uh, not related to postmenopausal changes. Right. Um, other things that can happen is just age-related. So not necessarily because of 
uh, menopause, but just age-related breakdown in bone at a certain point, you're not really repleting your bone stores, um, and so bone mineral density tends to just decrease over time. So patients who are older, like over 70 years old, usually develop some form of osteopenia or osteoporosis regardless, and will have an increased risk of fractures. Um, there's also medications that can cause your or conditions, medical conditions, that can cause your body to have brittle bones. Um, what are some of those conditions we talked about? Hypothyroidism. Uh, a big one is hyperparathyroidism, right? Because you're going to have osteoclastic activity stimulated, breakdown of bone, um, and increased risk of loss of bone mineral density. So one of the most important things on test questions is to make sure that you're not dealing with a secondary disorder. You don't want to just treat a patient um, with a medication when you should be treating the underlying condition. So underlying conditions, medications, postmenopausal, age-related, those are your big buckets of causes of osteopenia and osteoporosis. Um, <clears throat> things that you can do to help fix that. Um, so what are major hormones, supplements, and things like that that play a role in normal bone development? Vitamin D, calcium, uh, estrogen, and parathyroid hormone. So those are four things that are going to be centers of treatment as we go into treatment. So vitamin D, calcium supplementation. Um, what about lifestyle changes that can help with either reducing breakdown of bone or increasing bone mineral density in patients of appropriate age? Exercise. What kind of exercise? Weightlifting. Cool. Weightlifting, right? Weightlifting. Um, so weightlifting exercise, especially in younger women who still have a chance to increase bone mineral density through weightlifting, is really important. Um, yeah. If your patient's 70 years old and has very poor bone mineral density, having her lined up on the squat rack is probably a bad idea. Okay. Um, but if she's 25, you know, maybe not bad. Okay. Um, so, yes, uh, exercise is a big one. Smoking is a huge risk factor for osteoporosis, osteopenia. So important things to keep in mind. Um, yep. We talked about the T-scores. The T-scores are measured through x-rays. Um, some of the biggest sites of fracture that you're going to hear about, and another thing you need to pay really close attention to for the exam, um, is that common fracture sites are the vertebra um, and the hip, usually on the femoral neck. So femoral neck fractures and vertebral fractures, most commonly in the lumbar spine, are your big sites where you're going to be looking for these bone mineral density changes. And certain medications are going to work on both or one of those. So it's important to keep that in mind because if a patient has really low bone mineral density in the hip and you give them a medication that works mainly on the spine, then you're not doing anything. So your test questions are going to be mainly centered around what medication to use when, what side effects, um, which one's better for prevention of osteoporosis and osteopenia, which one's good for treatment of it, which one's good for postmenopausal women, which one's good for men or for medication-induced. So those are very small details that you need to pay attention to as we go along to make sure you're picking uh, the right agent for the patient. And another one of those is where is the bone mineral density or where is your concern for fracture and what medication is going to help in that specific region. Some work in both. So it's great for everybody, and some work just in the spine. So it's important to keep that in mind. And we'll talk about that now as we go through the medications. Do you guys have any questions so far?
Um, so this is just guidelines for bone mineral density testing. Um, is this relevant to your test? Not at all. Um, I'm not going to ask you about when you should be testing people for bone mineral density, um, but it's helpful to have some kind of baseline. Um, so any man or woman who's uh, significantly uh, high up in age, 65 or 70, you want to bone mineral density test. Um, anyone who's had a pathologic fracture, so anybody who walks in and says, hey, I didn't fall or hurt myself, but I broke my hip, uh, you probably want to check their bone mineral density um, to see why in the world they're having, um, you know, atraumatic fractures. People who have very high risk factors for fractures, um, smoking, long-term steroid use, uh, things like that, uh, long-standing family history, uh, those are patients that you also may consider testing, not so much at an advanced age, but at a younger age, uh, because if you can start preventative treatment early on, it might help them to, um, to prevent long-term complications. So um, this is just a chart going over, again, the T-scores. We already talked about that. More than negative 1 or negative 1 and higher is normal. Negative 2.5 and lower is porosis. And anything in between is penia. Uh, you don't treat people who are normal. You definitely treat people with osteoporosis. And you may or may not treat people with osteopenia. Um, but I will tell you that everyone in osteopenia or has osteopenia is taking vitamin D, calcium, and recommended to make lifestyle modifications, weightlifting exercises, um, things like that. So this is just kind of a guideline as to when to start treatment. Um, and I will tell you that for osteopenia and porosis, you're at the very minimum doing the dietary and lifestyle changes. And for porosis, you're certainly starting them on a medication. And again, normal, you're not so keep that in mind um, because you may get some T-scores telling you about when indications for treatment is. So keep that in mind. So these are some of the medications we're going to talk about. Um, calcium supplementation, vitamin D supplementation, calcitonin, um, bisphosphonates, which uh, much like some of our other lectures, I probably should have put a lot higher on the uh, treatment list because it's first line. Um, so, yeah, it is first line. Um, estrogen receptor modulators, or um, if you're typing this on a plane, uh, modulator. Uh, <laughs> parathyroid hormone um, supplementation and monoclonal antibody treatment, which is kind of like your last line of, uh, of treatment. And then uh, mainly for postmenopausal uh, estrogen replacement. Um, and also with the estrogen receptor modulators, also typically used for postmenopausal changes. All right, so we're starting off with calcium. Um, calcium does not cause a lot of side effects, so it's a really good way to start your treatment of patients who have uh, osteopenia, and also you still want to have them on it if they have osteoporosis. But if they have osteoporosis, this alone is not sufficient to treat them. So, um, but in osteopenia, it can be used as a medication along with vitamin D um, as your sole treatment means with other lifestyle modifications. Times that you um, want to avoid giving calcium is in patients who already have very high levels of calcium. Patients who have a history of renal stones related to having high calcium. Um, patients who have a history of arrhythmias, which may be brought on by increasing their serum levels of calcium. Um, so very, very important to keep that in mind. Um, not a lot of contraindications, but there are some. 
Um, another thing to take into account that's very important is that it should be given with meals because it's absorbed better when patients have acid in the stomach. So don't take it on empty stomach, take it um, with food. And there's a lot of different calcium supplements. Calcium carbonate is the most effective and the one that you want to use. You guys remember the signs and symptoms of hypercalcemia? What are they? Stones, bones, bones, psychiatric overtones, all those guys, right? Good. good, good, good. What does that mean? Oh. Well, then why are you asking me what it means? You asked, and there was a stone, bones, bones. Okay. So, yes, uh, so Nicole, what does it mean? What are stones? Kidney stones, bones. So it's, it's bone pain, not decrease. So decreased bone density, you'd see more in patients who have hypos. Yeah, bone, bone pain. Um, groans. Caused by? Constipation from too much calcium. So Nicole is right. A lot of times we say these things that we don't, we're like, what does this mean? And I did that for a long time. I was like, oh, stones, bones, groans. And then I see constipation, and I'm like, yeah, I don't remember that. That's not a stone or bone or groans. But yeah, it's groans, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's one of those mnemonics that we repeat, and we may not have it very clear what the things mean. I agree. Um, yeah, so after the serum calcium reaches very, very high levels, uh, that's when you can start having arrhythmias, um, BFib, things like that. You can start having some of your psychiatric overtones, a.k.a. confusion, delirium. Um, when you get to high levels. Um, it does interact with a lot of different medications. Uh, calcium supplementation interactions with other medications is not a commonly um, tested topic, and it's not going to be one that I'm going to test you on myself very much. There's quite a few medications that calcium um, interacts with. And a lot of times it's if you're having very, very high increases in the patient supplementation. So. A good rule of thumb, guys, is if you have a patient that is on a medication uh, that is essential to their normal functioning, like an anticoagulant, um, which if the levels are altered, they can die, uh, levothyroxine, in which the levels are altered, they can die. Anytime a patient's on one of those medications and you're going to make a major change to anything that they're doing, like adding a medication or a supplement, um, you should run an interaction checker on all those patients. And I would recommend that, um, that you do that routinely. Uh, if it's a medication that's not, um, you know, in that case, and, then you probably don't have to worry too much about it. But, you know, definitely do it with things like levothyroxine, um, blood pressure medications, and things like that. But, yeah, interactions with calcium supplementation is not a commonly tested topic, um, so I'm not going to really um, harp on it on my exam. Vitamin D supplementation. Um, vitamin D is obviously important for absorption of calcium. So you want to give it um, with the administration of calcium together. I'm not going to test you on the treatment goals of calcium, um, which is over 30, but uh, you won't be tested on that. You're also not going to be tested on the dose um, or the maintenance dose of vitamin D. Obviously, uh, you want to avoid vitamin D supplementation in patients who um, are going to have interactions with it, like patients who have hyperparathyroidism. If you have hyperparathyroidism, your serum levels of calcium are going to be what? High. Yep. So if you give them vitamin D, they're going to get more high. 
right, or higher, yeah. right? So you want to be careful with that. Uh, drug interactions with vitamin D, there are um, some that you should know. Uh, a big one of them is going to be hydrochlorothiazide, okay? The reason that it's important is because we said hydrochlorothiazide can do what? Hypercalcemia, uracemia, and glycemia, yes. So you want to avoid vitamin D because, again, they're going to be, just like in hyperparathyroidism, they're on hydrochlorothiazide, they may be hypercalcemic, and if you give them vitamin D, they're going to become more hypercalcemic. So that is a commonly tested interaction with hydrochlorothiazide and calcium supplementation and vitamin D supplementation. So keep that in mind. Um, obviously, giving vitamin D with other vitamin D analogs is going to cause uh, too much vitamin D, which is going to cause too much calcium absorption, and it's going to give hypercalcemia. So that's kind of a given. Uh, Orlisat, I, I did include it here because it's a medication we covered, and we said that it can interfere with the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins, one of them being vitamin D. So if you have a patient on Orlisat and you're giving them vitamin D to help with calcium, you're not doing much. So should you know these interactions? Absolutely. Um, and also with calcium, you should know um, you should know thiazides as well. It can happen in both. So we're going to go into actual um, medication treatment. Uh, vitamin D at certain doses is prescription, but a lot of times um, when you're giving vitamin D for maintenance uh, and calcium for maintenance, it can be done with over-the-counter supplementation. Um, bisphosphonates is our first strictly prescription medication, uh, and it is the first-line medication in the treatment and or prevention of osteoporosis um, and even osteopenia. Medication works on multiple different uh, mechanisms. It's going to decrease um, osteoclast activity, so you're not going to have as much breakdown of bone. Uh, it's going to increase osteoblast activity to um, uh, to help um, replete bones, um, but it's going to decrease bone, and it's going to decrease bone remodeling. Decreased bone remodeling is an important uh, effect of this medication because it helps in patients who have Paget's disease. Did you guys learn about Paget's disease at all? So there's Paget's or Paget's disease of bone and or breast. Um, in breast, a lot of times it's uh, you talked about in regards to malignancy of the breast. Um, but it's also in the bone, um, and it's a condition that really all you need to know is that the bones are abnormally broken down and replenished. So they go through cycles where there's bone breakdown and cycle where there's bone built up. And this happens so many times over and over and over again that the bones remodel themselves in very, very weird and erratic ways, and it can lead to weird bone deformities uh, and increased risk of fracture. Because although you're repleting the bones, you're doing it in a very disorganized fashion. So there's some weak points and some very dense points in the bones. So by decreasing remodeling of bones, bisphosphonates help in patients who have Paget's disease of the bone, in addition to osteoporosis, osteopenia. Um, but by decreasing remodeling, um, when is the time you would want bone remodeling? When you have a fracture. <laughs> so if your patient's taking bisphosphonates and you have a fracture, um, their ability to heal that fracture is not going to be great. So really good medication for preventing and treating osteoporosis and penia to prevent fractures. But once you get one, 
a very bad medication to be on because that fracture is going to take a very long time to get better. Professor, when you say that, use of, use of, a, of a bone, like, say you're basically you throw it up, would that bone be thicker? No. Um, yeah, your muscles may be um, hypertrophy from excessive use. Your bone, not necessarily. Um, tendons and ligaments, maybe. The bone itself would need weight-bearing activities to induce, um, and, and again, it's not gonna get thicker, it's just gonna be more dense. What would it be, like, could it, could it, can you localize it? It's not, like, throwing a baseball is not considered a weightlifting okay, wait, wait, activity. If you didn't throw it with your right, would, you, would the bone be stronger? The bone is gonna be, it can be, yeah. So if you do, like, one-legged squats for a very long time, you may have a very dense bone on the area where you're focusing on and not on the other one. Um, so if you have a patient that's already presenting with osteoporosis and you've had them on treatment with vitamin D, you have them on treatment with calcium and bisphosphonates, and then they have a hip fracture, um, how would the treatment go about? You just discontinue the bisphosphonates? Until their fracture's healed and then put them back on it. Uh, and also, I mean, it's it, if somebody just, so the reason they're on these medications is to prevent another fracture. If you just had a hip fracture, you're probably not getting around a lot. Your risk for getting a new fracture is going to be a little bit lower. Probably going to be a wheelchair. You'd be, you know, have a lot of help and support. So you would re remove the medication or you place them on a different agent while their uh, fracture is healing. But yeah, you, you would want, you don't want them to be on a bisphosphonate while they have an active fracture. Um, so again, first line treatment. Um, in postmenopausal osteoporosis, and honestly, in really any form of osteoporosis, it's your first line treatment. Um, it's the medication that increases bone mineral density the most and reduces the risk of fracture the most. It works in men, it works in women, um, it works in patients who have glucocorticoid induced osteoporosis and penia. So it works for literally everybody, right? Um, it can be given orally, it can be given in an injection form. The patient's tolerated uh, poorly in an oral form, and the reason it's tolerated poorly is because it's uh, it's hard to take down. And because it's hard to take down, there's a really big risk of the medication not going down and getting stuck in the esophagus, leading to esophagitis, esophageal perforation. So because of that, um, you don't want the patients to take this immediately before bedtime and laying down right after. You want them to take it when they can sit upright for some period of time, 30 to 60 minutes after taking it, um, to prevent that. So, very important that you know that. Risk of esophagitis, esophageal perforation. Um, make sure the patient drinks plenty of water and stays upright for 30 to 60 minutes. You, you will be tested on that, uh, on my exam, on the pants, everywhere. Do not take it right before bedtime. I'm not going to ask you exactly how much water to take, so um, drink water. So patients who start it um, because, yeah. Do you know if somebody that has multiple myeloma, if you have multiple myeloma, can you be given by sauce I'm not sure. It's not a listed indicated use I'm not sure if it's an off-label use of bisphosphonates. I'm not sure. Um, so take the medication, stay upright, uh, never before bedtime. 
the big things that the medication can cause in terms of side effects is going to be bone pain. Obviously, if you're having um, uh, you know increased uh, repletion of bone, um, you can have bone pain. So these patients may have bone pain, and specifically, uh, you want to look out for bone pain on the jaw. One of the biggest side effects of this medication that's tested all the time, you'll see it on your pants, guaranteed. You'll see it on your uh, ortho medicine exam. You'll see it on my exam. You probably see it a lot of times is osteonecrosis of the jaw. So if patients having jaw pain, uh, it's a really big red flag that they can be having osteonecrosis. And one of the reasons why you would maybe stop the medication. You guys are going to have a lot of questions about bisphosphonates on your exam, so make sure you know them very, very well. Um, what else? So the big ones you need to know is pill esophagitis, possible esophageal perforation. Um, over long term, obviously, if you're having ulcerations on multiple different occasions, um, you can lead to like dysplasia and development of malignancies over time. Um, it's not a common side effect, but over time you, you can develop it. Uh, poor fracture healing and osteonecrosis of the jaw are all side effects and interactions that you're, you guys are going to be tested on. Uh, certain medications in the class work better than others for certain things. Alendronate is good for hip and vertebral fractures, and Ibandronate is only good for vertebral fractures. So Ibandronate does not prevent hip fractures. So keep that in mind. If you have a patient that has low bone mineral density of the hip, um, Alendronate is a much better choice than Ibandronate. Yeah. So Alendronate is going to reduce risk of fractures in uh, vertebral fractures as well as hip fractures. Ibandronate is going to just decrease the risk of vertebral fractures. So Ibandronate will be a poor choice for somebody who has bone mineral density localized to the hip. And Alendronate would be a much better choice for that patient. There are IV formulations of the medication that can be given. Um, and this is very useful in patients who have poor compliance or don't tolerate the oral version. So if you have a patient um, who has, you know, problems taking the medication orally or you're worried because they have, you know, medical conditions, uh, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, things like that, and maybe they're having, uh, you know, dysphagia, uh, an oral form of the medication would probably be a poor choice. So you would want to use an IV uh, medication. They have formulations that are given annually um, and that are given um, every three months. So it works a lot better um, in that regard. Uh, the catch is that the patient has to come in to get an infusion of medication rather than just taking a pill. Uh, also, um, some of the IV formulations have a higher risk for like uh, uh, renal. Yeah, for nephrotoxicity. Yeah, nephrotoxicity. And what if you get a fraction the medication until the fracture is healed and then you restart it? Oh yeah, there's nothing you can do about that. You already got it, you got it. Yeah, you're done. That means get away. Fracture's gonna take longer to heal. So next we're gonna talk about selective estrogen receptor modulation. Um, so the word selective is very important. Uh, it works 
on the channels of estrogen that you want it to work on and not on the ones you don't. So specifically, it's going to work on uh, lipid metabolism, uh, bone, um, uh, bone breakdown and bone repletion. Uh, it's going to work, unfortunately, one of the ones that you kind of don't want it to work on, but it does, is on the blood. So it still increases the risk of hypercoagulable states. Um, but it helps with lipid metabolism, it helps with bone breakdown. Um, it affects blood, which is one of the downsides because it can still create hypercoagulable states. Uh, but it does not affect the breast and uterine tissues. So when you're using the selective estrogen receptor modulators, um, your risk of uterine cancer is going to not be existent, and your risk of breast cancer is going to not be existent. Whereas if you're just using strictly estrogen, it's going to increase your risk of breast and uterine cancer. So one of the benefits of having a selective modulator versus just treating with estrogen. Reduced risk of endometrial and breast cancer. So yeah, just estrogen, the actual estrogen as a hormone, if you give it, which is not what this is, this is a modulator, it acts on the channels and exerts the effects very selectively on lipid metabolism, blood metabolism, and bone. So you will still have an increased risk of DVTs, PEs, thrombotic events. You will have um, a decreased breakdown of bone and um, over time decreased loss of bone mineral density. So very useful in patients who are having this condition due to low estrogen levels, like postmenopausal women, um, and works better in that regard than just estrogen supplementation, because you have no risk of uterine or breast cancer. A lot of times, the way you're going to get these questions um, is on why or who you don't give this medication to. Um, you don't give this medication to men. Um, because it's not going to reduce their risk of fracture. Um, you do give it to women who are postmenopausal. Um, obviously, if the patient's problem and reason why they have osteoporosis and osteopenia is glucocorticoid use, treating them with a medication that helps with estrogen is not going to do a whole lot for them. So this medication is very specific to postmenopausal women. Uh, and the other thing that you're going to be tested on is who you don't give it to and you don't give it to people who are at high risk of developing uh, DVTs or PEs, including pregnant women. Right. And that's pretty much it. Any questions? So next we're going to talk about um, some of the injectable medications as well as um, estrogen replacement. So calcitonin, um, calcitonin works by inhibiting osteoclasts. So uh, calcitonin is a hormone produced where? In the thyroid gland, right? Uh, they think of like the perfollicular cells or something, so the thyroid gland. Um, and they pretty much counteract what hormone? PTH. PTH. So instead of stimulating osteoclastic activity to increase your levels of calcium in the blood, they are going to slow down osteoclastic activity um, in the body. Okay, so by slowing down osteoclastic activity in the body, you are going to stop the breakdown of bone. So that's how the medication works. Okay, so mechanism of action is important for you to know. 
Um, it can be given intranasally as a spray or I, uh, through um, uh, IM injections. Very important to note, um, side effects are not very pertinent. Yes, it can cause flushing, but it's not a commonly tested topic. I'm not going to test you on adverse effects of calcitonin. The medication works for preventing vertebral fractures. Um, just like we talked about, ibandronate does not reduce hip fractures, neither does calcitonin. So poor choice for patients who have isolated hip loss of bone mineral density. Get a vignette, and it tells you that the patient has a T-score um, of less than negative 2.5 in the hip, um, and their spine is okay. You would not pick abandronate. You would not pick calcitonin as an answer choice for any of those. So teriparatide is essentially PTH. Okay, it's a PTH analog. Um, it's administered as a daily injection. And being um, a PTH, it's going to stimulate bone growth in um, uh, postmenopausal women. Again, not used um, very often. The uh, Zunomop is a monoclonal antibody um, that is. Uh, it's beneficial in the sense that it's administered every six months. So by being administered every six months, the medication is, uh, the compliance is obviously going to be high. But uh, being a monoclonal antibody, um, it can come with a lot of um, adverse effects. Uh, hypercholesterolemia, cystitis, skin reactions, um, musculoskeletal pain are the major ones. Um, it's not considered first line. It's actually used in patients who have really failed most other methods of treatment, so it's going to be one of your later lines of treatment. So if you get a vignette for a patient that's been through multiple courses of treatment and still maintains themselves at very high risk uh, for fractures, you would want to use this medication. And it works for preventing all types of fractures. Um, and then you have estrogen replacement. Um, which is considered the uh, gold standard of treatment for postmenopausal osteoporosis. Um, it works very, very well for postmenopausal women. Um, it, the, the problem with it is that it increases the risk of endometrial and uterine cancer. So even though it works better than something like a selective estrogen receptor modulator, in patients who have high risk for developing uterine or breast cancer or who have a history of it, you would want to avoid it, and that's when you would use the estrogen receptor modulator instead. It has the same effects on increasing risk of venous thrombus, uh, thrombus embolism as um, a selective estrogen receptor modulator, so you have to keep that in mind in terms of what you can and can't treat with it. You want to start therapy with it as soon as possible after the onset of menopause, um, for prevention of osteoporosis and osteopenia uh, because after a period of 10 years, the risk of cardiovascular disease um, is going to increase in these patients. So the sooner you start it, the better. Um, another time where you would prefer to use estrogen is in patients who need it not just for osteoporosis and osteopenia, but also for other conditions. So 
you have a patient who's experiencing other symptoms related to uh, menopause, and they also have osteoporosis and osteopenia, you can kill two birds with one stone. That's a patient you might prefer to use um, estrogen-related treatment medications for. Uh, these next two tables are kind of meant to put into perspective some of the factors that I want you guys to be aware of. GIO stands for glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis. Okay. PMO stands for postmenopausal osteoporosis. Um, MEN stands for MEN. So you're really trying to see which medications are good for prevention. I'm glad some of my jokes are fine. <laughs> um, prevention, treatment, okay, and functional in men, functional in glucocorticoid induced. So this chart kind of helps um, summarize that a little bit more concisely. We've already talked about it. The only thing that's missing here that you guys really need to know is uh, vertebral and hip, um, and the um, you know medications that help with vertebral and help with hip or help with both. So those are ways that you can get questions wrong and mess up which medication to use. I'm trying to see if this chart has anything. It doesn't add a whole lot more over the other chart to be honest with you, but. So I think this one is the main one that's going to help you narrow that down in terms of the categories of which you need to know. Um, and I would add the location of fracture prevention as well for this. And that's it. Okay. Can I stop the recording? Absolutely.